Okay, so we're in this series, but we're going to pray first. <laughs> Father, thank you again for this night. Thank you for, thank you for, for what you've done in Brandy's life and Zach and Ethan's lives. Um, thank you that you are the God who, when we surrender ourselves to you, restores us, who gives us hope, who puts us on our feet, who plucks us out of the miry clay, out of the pit that seems as though we could never get out of it. Who, who comes and shows up and comes right near us, rolls up your sleeves and is willing to get dirty with us in order for us to become clean. So praise you, Lord Jesus, that uh, all of us can come to you. We can all find hope. We can all be transformed. We can all be inspired by your spirit. So Father, I, I just would ask that you would remind that of those that are sitting out here today of what you've done in their lives and what you've done in the lives of people around them. Remind them and encourage them, Lord God. Remind me and encourage me. Remind us all and encourage us because it's sometimes too easy to start to think that we're doing it by our own strength or that maybe maybe it's just not happening. Um, but it does. It does happen. People's lives are encouraged and changed. We love you so much, Heavenly Father, and we praise you. Amen. So we're in this series called Back to Galilee, rethinking everything that Jesus taught, said, and did in light of the resurrection. It's a long subtitle, and I keep adding to it, I think, but nonetheless. Um, that's the idea, is like, now that the resurrection has occurred, now that Jesus has died on a cross, but he's alive again, what does that tell us about everything that Jesus did and said? The things that sometimes seemed utterly insane kind of make some sense. Actually, they make a lot of sense, but only in light of the resurrection. So that's what we're doing. We're going back and, and considering what Jesus had to say and what Jesus had to do and what Jesus had to teach us both by what he did and what he said. There's... so. I, there's, some, there's a bunch of things that trouble me. I probably spend too much time being troubled by things. I am probably too much of a worrier in some capacity. But generally speaking, I don't worry a lot about my own life or even the lives of my family. I, that's not what I spend my time troubled about. Um, but there are things that trouble me really greatly, that keep me up at night. Things that trouble me to the point of, I would say, being filled with grief. And I, I, I have to constantly surrender those things that fill me with grief to Jesus. One of the things that really troubles me deeply is that there are lots of Christians that don't think deeply about evil. They don't take Jesus' teachings with seriousness concerning evil. As if they don't apply to today's world. And as I mentioned before we took communion that there's an awful lot of theologizing that goes on about the cross and not enough practical application of the cross. There's a lot of talk about, theologically, what happened on the cross. And again, I don't want to undo that. There's a lot of conversation about atonement, many theories of atonement, and they're important. As a matter of fact, I would say they're important to have all together and to look at and help find balance between these different ideas of atonement, of what happened in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. But if we don't practically apply the cross to our lives? We're missing a lot. We must 
embrace the call, if you will, or, or maybe better yet, the command to love our enemies. If, as Jesus says, we only love those who love us, what good are we? We fail the basic Christian virtue litmus test. I mean, quite honestly, even radical extremists love those who love them. What makes us any different if we don't love our enemies? It's a foundationally basic Christian conviction that no one in the face of this earth is beyond redemption. And that it is love, the love of God, that overcomes. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This isn't something new. I think it's something that comes into much more light in light of the cross. But listen to what Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 says. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Or Paul, picking up on this proverb, writes in Romans, only actually after having talked a great deal about how love fulfills the law, he writes to the church in Rome, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, leave at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and then quoting Proverbs 25, 21 and 22, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his, heads, on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or Jesus hanging on a cross, crying out to the very people that are crucifying him, nailing him to a cross, the very people who had flogged him, beaten him, pressed a crown of thorns into his head, people that were spitting on him, about to stab him through with a sword, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So why is it that we don't take this love of enemies thing seriously? Is it because we're too short-sighted? That our faith or trust in resurrection isn't strong? Do we think death has the final say on things? Is that why? Is it because we're led by fear rather than faith? This fear... This fear overwhelm us more than trust overwhelms us. Or maybe it's not taken seriously because we are simply evil ourselves and are good at calling evil good. 
Or maybe the command to love one's enemies is not taken seriously because nobody talks about it. I think that's probably more than anything, is nobody wants to talk about it. Because this is really, really flipping hard. So let's not talk about the hard stuff, let's just talk about the easy stuff. Which doesn't do us a lot of good when it comes to the hard stuff that comes in our lives, right? Maybe love of enemies means to some being soft. Or maybe it means being passive. Or maybe it's because when some people think about loving your enemies as being soft and passive, that they think it's closely related to apathy. To just not doing anything. Oh, those, those, those people that don't want to kill other people, those people that care about their enemies, that pray for them, that are not going to persecute them back. They're just a bunch of soft, sheep-like people. Maybe it's because when it's not talked about enough, no one really understands that Jesus' way of loving enemies is not to do nothing. I don't know. Of all those options, and I'm sure there are more that are rattling through your head, I don't, I don't know. Likely, and there's some sense that all of those things are true. I think I can relate to every... Well, I wrote them down. I think I can relate to every one of those. This is, those are the things that make it really radically difficult for me to understand and embrace this call to love my enemy. But one thing I do know for sure, I don't know all the reasons why we don't want to take this call seriously, but one thing I do know for sure is that we need to think deeply about Jesus' teaching concerning evil and how to overcome it. Because it's all around us. Generally speaking, most people understand that there are two ways to resist evil or to respond to evil. One is to just meet evil with the same violence that it's meeting you with. The idea is that someone has to stop the violence, even if violence must be used to do so. And so we get things like, if you've heard of it before, just war theory. What kind of atrocities have to be happening for us to use the kind of force that's being used that we define the atrocious thing by? I think that this is probably where much of the Western church lives. There must be a point at which evil gets so horrible that we meet it with the same kind of force that it's coming at us with. The problem with this, and there's so many problems, there's only one that I'm going to mention right now, is that us are oftentimes duped. We're duped to talk about what's just war. What, what's going on? And like, It doesn't take much more than three simple letters. WMDs. Right? Weapons of mass destruction. There must be weapons of mass destruction. That will justify us going over and terrorizing another country. It's a tough one. It's a tough one, too, to bring back to the cross. Because certainly you could say that Jesus was meeting the kind of evil that would justify resorting to evil to oppose it. Right? But he didn't. Hmm. Okay. 
The other well-known response, one that actually leads many to have the desire to apply a just war theory, is to just do nothing. This is typically what nonviolent Christians are accused of by other groups, including Christians who are willing to use violence, or quickly, easily, well, that's probably an overstatement, that are willing to, just I'll leave it at that, that are willing to use violence. And if that was really what our option was, they have a point. They have a point. If the, if the only other option to resist evil was to just do nothing, the, the just war theorists would have a point. A really strong point. Because going all the way back to at least Plato, people pointed out things like the penalty, and this is quoting Plato, the penalty good men pay for indifference to public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. Doing nothing isn't a good response. Or Albert Einstein wrote as part of his tribute to Pablo Caslas, the world is in greater peril from those who tolerate or encourage evil than from those who actually commit it. Or the most well-known quote of our day, arguably attributed to Irish philosopher Edmund Burke, you guys probably know this one, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. That's a good point, right? So are those the only options that we have? Is to meet violence with the same kind of violence to stop the violence? Or to do nothing? Are those the only options that we have? Because I'll be honest with you, if those were the two, I would choose meeting violence with violence once it was necessary. But there must be something that we can do that is nonviolent and embodies this call to love one's enemies but that's not doing nothing. A third way. Active nonviolent resistance. Who's heard of that before? I know some of you have. Ever heard of Walter Wink? Walter Wink, yeah. Some people love him, some people hate him. I kind of love him. Don't know him, but other than through his writings. Let 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 me start this section off by just reading for you from Matthew 5, 38 through 48, which actually is our text for today. It's part of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking to this ragamuffin bunch of people that are beat up, bruised, bloodied, oppressed by the Romans, oppressed by the religious establishment. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your enemies and hate, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet those, if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, who in this first section, this eye for the eye and tooth for a tooth part, is Jesus talking to? 
In this passage, he's talking to the victims of violence and oppression. That's what this ragamuffin bunch of group is experiencing. They're experiencing the oppression of the Roman Empire. They're experiencing oppression at the hands of their very own people. Golly, I know that there are a number of people that sit in this room right now that have been oppressed by their very own people, that have been treated violently by the people that they were supposed to be loved. Loved by. So Jesus is talking to this group of people, the ones that are the victims of violence and oppression. If anyone would strike, sue, take from you. That's who Jesus is addressing. But Jesus is not advocating the the absence of conflict. He's not advocating for the absence of conflict. One of the things I spend more time talking about when it comes to premarital counseling and marriage is conflict resolution. How to deal with conflict. He's uh, He's not advocating that we just pretend like nothing happens. I know some husbands are looking at their wives right now. We don't have conflict, right? No conflict. Yeah, right. Whatever. I don't know where to look now. <laughs> look down. Hi, honey. <laughs> In order to deal with conflict, we have to address it. In order to deal with problems, we have to address them. In fact, Jesus, what he is doing is promoting conflict in a new way. Actually, he is posting a different kind of or sorry, he is positing a different kind of conflict. One that was not initiated by the perpetrator, but one that is initiated by the victim. We see this in turn the other cheek, give him your cloak as well, and finally in go with him two miles. Each of these actions is thoughtfully calculated. And it's new. It's a new way, a different way than anybody probably had ever thought of before. A nonviolent conflict that forces the perpetrator to think differently. And it, as a matter of fact, it, as Wink points out, that it forces the oppressor to become a victim in some sense themselves, not necessarily though a victim of violence. So let me explain. You guys are probably like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Turn the other cheek. I need Chad to come here for a minute. No, seriously. Turn the other cheek. I'm doing the slapping. (laughs) So, I want you to turn this way. Yeah. So, if, if I'm the guy that's treating him unfairly, unrighteously, unrightly, if he's the victim in this situation, and I'm the, I'm the guy with the power... I am going to, if I'm going to slap him, I'm going to slap him with my right hand. And I'm not going to do it with the palm of my hand. I'm going to do it with the back of my hand. Okay? And that's what Jesus says. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, so it's going to look like this. Whack! Right? Because that's what you do to somebody that's beneath you. You probably have seen this in movies and different settings before where if you're really trying to shame somebody, you slap them with the back of your hand. Because the idea is they can't do diddly squat about it or else we'll really put the screws to them. Right? This is my, my clean hand in this culture. So Jesus says to them, as a form of active nonviolent resistance, turn the other cheek to them also. So what happens when you turn your other cheek to me? 
What are my options? I could backhand him with my left hand, but I can't do that because that's my unclean hand. I'm going to bring shame onto myself because remember, this isn't really about doing physical harm to him. This is about humiliating him. So I can't, I'll humiliate myself if I slap him with the back of my left hand. So what are my options to use with my right hand? Either slap him open-handed or punch him in the face, both of which would then be to treat him as an equal. Thank you. Excellent work. So when Jesus advocates for turning the other cheek, he's not saying do nothing. He's saying do something. Turn the other cheek. Yeah, love your enemy and care about them, but it's not even a good place for them to be where they're thinking about somebody else is just beneath them. Turn your other cheek to them. Resist the evil. Resist the evil. Don't resist the evil person. Seek that they're good, their redemption. Point out to them that what they're doing isn't okay. Have some guts and stand up for yourself. And in so doing, maybe you can radically change the way that somebody thinks. Put them in the position of being stuck. Or, Jesus says, if somebody wants your coat, give them your, tun- their, your tunic as well. It's the same thing. Let me read for you just a little bit from Deuteronomy 24. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what was offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. This, then they, they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. So you guys are probably familiar with the whole notion of, well, nakedness. It's kind of shameful in our culture. A little bit. It's really shameful in this culture. Right? And so what Jesus is advocating for is somebody comes up to you and unjustly just demands that you give them your coat. Give me your coat or I'm going to... I don't know what. Just give me your coat. Say, okay, fine. I'll stay down naked. And I will give you my tunic as well. My undergarment. I'll stand here naked. And now you have to make the decision about what you're going to do with the tunic and the cloak that you have of mine. Are you going to give it back to cover my shame? And by the way, that shame touches not just the person that's naked, but the one that's viewing the one that's naked. Or are you going to break this command by keeping it? Because if he gives it back, he's honoring God, but he's also doing something kind for the very person he just demanded his tunic from or his coat from. Again, Jesus isn't advocating for doing nothing. This is another way to deal with the oppressive structures that are in place in that world. Or go the extra mile. This method for making the Roman oppressor, in this case, uncomfortable. That's what, they're, what the whole point is, is make them feel really uncomfortable about the situation. The commonly invoked Roman law called Angaria allowed Roman soldiers and other officials to demand that inhabitants of occupied territories to force them to carry messages or equipment the distance of one mile. So if I'm a Roman soldier and I'm like marching down the road and I'm getting kind of tired of carrying my pack and I see John standing there, I'm like, you carry my pack and according to Roman law, you have to do it. And so John 
Well, he probably wouldn't. <laughs> He'd probably do what Jesus is teaching here. <laughs> so, you would have to comply or be arrested. That's the idea. But they could only make you go, according to this law, one mile. And so Jesus is saying, as a form of resistance, go a second mile. The guy's going to be like, no, can you stop? Because if my superior sees me, I'm going to get in serious trouble. You can't, don't go with me another mile. Don't, I can only have you go one mile. Stop it. What happens then? The tides have turned. The tables have turned. All of a sudden, the powerless one has the power. And the soldier is like, stop it. Again, Jesus isn't advocating for doing nothing. He's just trying to teach us a way of resisting evil that isn't just to use evil. It's not just trying to use the force that somebody is using on you on them. This kind of response to the evil recognizes the value of the victim and forces the perpetrator to acknowledge the equality of the parties. Equality. It's not a matter of placing yourself over the soldier in that last case. It's not trying to say, I'm better than you. It's trying to point out that we're equals. You're no better than I am. I'm no better than you are. And let's just get that straight. It's a powerful approach, Jesus' way, to resisting evil. Well, it's not trying to do harm to the evil person. It's not resisting the evil person. It's trying to break down the evil that the person is trying to perpetrate on another person. To quote Wink, he says, By refusing to be awed by others' power, the power, powerless are emboldened to seize the initiative. Even where structural change is not possible, he accepts the laws as they stand, pushes them to the point of absurdity, and reveals for them what they are. And brings people to this state of equality. And it does this the whole time, while not responding with violence. It addresses evil without using evil. It em embraces power while not using that power to harm another. Jesus is pretty smart. He was a pretty smart guy. I mean, he is the Lord of the cosmos, right? I want to take a little bit of time to consider some things that we can do, that we need to, that we need, I guess some things that we just need, really need to think about when it comes to resisting evil. The things that we can do, things that we need to have maybe in our mind and our framework and things that we can do to resist evil and to deal with violence, but that doesn't resort to violence. I think the first thing we need to have in our framework of our, of our heads is that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. My battle is not against my enemy. We have to get that thoroughly through our heads. My battle is not against another person. Right? My battle is not against the guy that's trying to hurt me or harm me or create strife or struggle or difficulty in my life. That is not who my battle is against. I mean, I might have to deal with something with the person. We might have to deal with something with people. But that's not who our battle is against. We have to recognize that our battle is against powers and principalities. 
people that are trying to entice and spirits that are trying to entice, however you think about that, people to do violence, to take the part of evil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Another person isn't our enemy. We need to do something before it's absolutely necessary. If we wait around until it's absolutely necessary to do something, it might not go so well. We might end up finding ourselves resorting to situations of evil, being tempted to do it. We need to deal with things that we see in this world that are wrong when we can still do something about it. I'll return to that point in a minute. We have to seize the moral initiative. In other words, we need to do what is right in the face of wrong. We need to be proactive. Evil in the world must be addressed. We can't play, play it off or turn a blind eye to it. We have to remember that doing nothing is not an option. And I can't stress this enough. Active nonviolent resistance is active. It's active. You do something. Maybe this could all be in just one point. We cannot do nothing or evil will prevail. The just war theorists in that sense have a point. Just like think for a minute about Nazi Germany. Not if people waited around until Hitler was already in as much power as he had, but what if they did something about it? What if the church would have risen up and done something powerfully about it to begin with, recognizing it for what it was? And obviously we can't know that. And in retrospect, it's really easy to say that. But what if, what if we would have recognized it? What if the church would have recognized it and started doing something about it right off the bat? And if you study that time in history, you recognize that the church had a tendency to waffle an awful lot and actually rally behind Hitler rather than oppose him, unfortunately. Or, or maybe something that hits a little more close to home. What if... What if Christians would have rallied to oppose in a nonviolent way the bullying that happened in a place like Columbine? Like it's easy to look on that in the past and say, oh yeah, those kids were embodiments of evil. But what pushed them to that point? We also hear stories about how they were bullied, picked on, treated unfairly. What would have happened if enough people would have intervened and said, no, it's not okay, and come up with creative ways to be able to deal with that kind of bullying? Praise God, only after many of those situations have transpired, people are finally starting to do that very kind of thing. We need to find creative alternatives to violence. One of the things that Jesus does is he meets force with ridicule and humor, or humoring ridicule or ridiculing humor. He deals with, with stuff by clowning at times. Making a, a funny point out of something that he sees as an unjust structure. To point out how absurd it is. One of them that's just missed on us oftentimes is when Jesus is in the temple and he's really laying it on the, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, calling them hypocrites, and points out the way that they tithe their mint, dill, and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law. Like, that's funny. What do you think a 10-acre crop of dried dill looks like? 
It looks like really something hugely substantial to the point that everybody else is like, oh my goodness, that guy is super righteous. Do you see all the dill that he brought in? It's not much substance to it. There's not much weight to dried dill. And people ate it up. No, yeah, pun, maybe no pun intended. <laughs> they, they thought that was just amazing. But the whole time they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law like faithfulness and justice and mercy. Jesus names and deals with this unjust structure by pointing out the absurdity of it using humor. This next point is one that maybe some of you will scratch your heads on a little bit. Assert your own humanity and dignity as a person. Assert your own humanity and dignity as a person. You know, to be humble isn't to have a low view of yourself. To be humble is to have a high view of others. Right? It doesn't mean much when you say, I'm a wallowing in the mud piece of garbage. And you're better than I am, but not much. <laughs> Right? But it means something to say, you know what? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by God and He's put His Spirit in me and He loves me and He cherishes me and my life matters. And so does yours. And I have come, I have been given life to serve, just like my Savior has. So we can assert our own humanity and dignity as persons. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as we do that, as we humbly do that, we can pursue actions that cause our oppressors to see us and others in a different light, in a different way. When we stand up for ourselves, asserting our own humanity and dignity as a person, it can cause all of a sudden our oppressors to see us differently. I think that's kind of the whole point of Jesus with the go the extra mile. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Maybe there's something to this guy. Expose the injustice of the systems that are around us. Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And points out in a somewhat funny way, but probably not ha-ha sorts of funny so you're telling me that you're going to save one of your barnyard animals, but you're not going to save your brother? It's okay to go and collect a bunch of people together and pull your oxen out of a pit, but you don't care about your brother or sister? Well, that's crazy talk. That's insane. That's never the way God's law was intended to be. He points out the injustice of the system. Consider how you can force people in power to make decisions for which they are not prepared. Jesus is really good at that, and we are not so good at that sometimes. Consider how you can force those in power to make decisions for which they are not prepared. So who was being a neighbor? Oh, no. I guess it was the one who had mercy on him. Recognize your power regardless of how victimized you might have been in your life at some point in time, you have power. And in those powers, in, in, with that power, use it 
to support and encourage people around you. Stand your ground. Don't shrink back from what you know is right. Deprive your oppressor of a situation where they can show that force is effective. Deprive your oppressor of situations where a show of force is effective. That's tough, I know. All these are tough. Die to fear of the old order and its rules. And maybe... Maybe this is the most important one. Be willing to suffer rather than retaliate. Be willing to suffer rather than retaliate. You remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Y'all were there, right? <laughs> In some sense. You guys remember that, that story, though, that night? It's the night Jesus was betrayed and later arrested. Betrayed with a kiss. Remember, remember what happened on that night? same one that uh, Jesus referred to as Satan, the Apostle Peter, as the Roman battalion is coming to arrest Jesus, he draws out his sword to resist evil. And he pulls it out, and what does he do? He slices off a soldier's ear. And what does Jesus do? Peter! We've been over this? And he takes up the man's ear and he heals him. Revealing to everyone there, including his disciples, that that kind of violence isn't the way you overcome evil. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's a different way. There's a different way to oppose evil. can't be stressed too much that love of enemies is the litmus test for authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy too is a child of God. Love of enemies is the recognition that love wins. Love of enemies is the recognition that love conquers everything. Love of enemies is the recognition that while we were called to righteousness, no one is beyond the hope of receiving the free gift of forgiveness and reconciliation. Love of enemies is the litmus test for authentic Christian faith. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a tunic. It was a beautiful tunic, one piece woven without seams. It was taken from him as he was left naked. It was taken by his enemies, the very people that were going to nail him to a cross and crucify him. And these enemies were dividing their stuff amongst themselves. And they decided that the tunic was just entirely too beautiful to tear into four pieces and to divide between them. So they decided that instead of doing that, this thing that they wanted to get for nothing, that they'd cast lots for it. They were so focused on getting for free this tunic and everything else that they were trying to get of this man's that they failed to see the free gift that was of more worth 
than even a seamlessly woven garment. They're fighting over getting something for free when the one who had everything to offer them for free is in their midst. The gift was forgiveness. Forgiveness offered even to enemies trying to free score, score free stuff. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This single show of nonviolence, understood properly, has done more to overcome evil and violence than any other act in human history. Jesus has brought peace into the world through offering himself to love his enemies even when that meant his own death. Why do we think it should be any different now? We can't create a new way. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Jesus' way is to love his enemies. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. We need to learn to think more deeply about evil. We need to learn to think more deeply about how to resist it. We need to think more deeply about considering Jesus' way. As difficult, as hard as that, hard as that is, we have to. Because there is no other way than the way of the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you and thank you for sending your Son to sacrifice Himself on a cross for us. Forgive us that we so oftentimes just think about it as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and not as an example for us to follow, having no practical implications to our lives because it does have very practical implications to us, Jesus. So teach your church. Show us. Help us to pay attention to us. Help us to risk to think differently about how to oppose evil in the world. Help us to recognize that your activity, Lord God, on the cross was not doing nothing, but it was doing something. Your cries, Jesus, on the cross, thank you for them. Thank you that you cry for our forgiveness. And that, at least for myself, when I read that, Jesus, and I hear your words... It heaps burning coals on my head. Because I know who I am, I know what I've done, and I know what you've done for me. Help us to embody that in our lives. Father, I know that people are all over the place on this topic. But help us to bring balance to one another. Help us to never just pretend as though we can skirt around the cross. That we have to come and stand before it 
if we're going to trust in it as you're revealing your love for the world, we have to go, go to it, not around it. Teach us, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Amen.